amplification, so I shall chapter 2. And we're here, we'll read the uh, whole of the chapter. So if I could have some quiet, I'll read it to you, so you can all hear me. It came about in the month Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, What would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it please the king, and if your servant has found favour before you, Excuse me, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, I always think that's a funny insert there, the queen sitting beside him, it sounds as though she's nudging him or something to make him make the right decision. How long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, if it please the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me, because the good hand of my God was on me. Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. And when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what God was putting in my mind or my heart to do for Jerusalem, and there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well, onto the refuse gate inspecting the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which were consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again and returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. Nor had I as yet told the Jews the priests, the nobles, the officials, 
all the rest who did the work. Then I said to them, you see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them how the hand of my God had been favourable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. But when Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered them and said, The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion, right or memorial in Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, we ask you, please speak to us again through your word today. We are very, very hungry to hear from you. We believe that all of your word is written for teaching and correction. We believe that it is all inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we pray that through this real event in these Old Testament times, you will speak to us very clearly and show us the way to see the city rebuilt. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, there's one answer to prayer. I believe the speakers are working now. Yes? Yes? Yes, is it working? Nod at me if they... Yeah, okay. I can't stand your enthusiasm. Okay. Let's get on with it then. Last time we were together, we looked at uh, Nehemiah's burden to build the city of Jerusalem. We read that he asked for reports from people who knew what was going on with the remnant that had returned to Jerusalem. And the good news was that the temple had been built, but that there was now just a cluster of people around the temple And we saw that that was a picture of worship being restored, but we saw that even though worship had been restored and the glory of God had come back into the temple, Nehemiah was still broken-hearted because the people were in distress and in reproach. And although we've spent a number of weeks here speaking about the priority of worship, we noted that it's just as important for us to be committed to the building of the church in every aspect of her life so that she will be the joy of the whole earth. Nehemiah heard the news and he wept. He prayed for days. Were we moved enough to start to pray after the last time we looked at this? Did you really hear enough for it to affect your prayer life as we looked at the need of God's church today? Nehemiah was moved to pray. He didn't pray a prayer of pity. That's quite good. He didn't pray a prayer of pity, but he argued his case before God. He said, Lord, they're your people. You redeemed them. It's your city. You promised. Now will you do something about it, God? And at first glance at that, we think, what a presumptuous man this is. But as we will go on to see, 
God answered that kind of praying. He called on God. He said, be attentive, Lord. Listen to me, O God, for the sake of your people, for the sake of Jerusalem. He made big requests based on the promises and purposes of God. And it's a great lesson for us that though we face huge difficulties, maybe you're facing something which almost seems overwhelming to you now in your personal life. Be like Nehemiah. Don't shrivel up in front of it. Get before God and argue your case and ask him for big things. The Lord reigns, we saw last week. That's how Nehemiah could come so confidently before his God because he knew the purposes of God would not be thwarted. Today we're going to move on from Nehemiah's personal call to this work. We're going to see God's challenge to Nehemiah, what it really meant to him to be involved in this burden. And then we're going to see the response of the people. We're going to move from Nehemiah's personal challenge to the people's corporate commitment. First of all then, let's just take note of where Nehemiah was. God had taken great care to get his servants in the right place at the right time. At the end of chapter 1, we just have this little line slipped in. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah was in the right place and he was in the right place at the right time. I just want to encourage you to start with this morning to take note of where God has placed you. Not to write it off as insignificant, not to write it off as meaningless in God's kingdom purposes, but you might find yourself one day in a position, you might be right there now, which is exactly the spot where God has you for a particular work to be done. You may be here today for maybe just the second or third time or even the first time. Let me challenge you to think, why am I in this place at this time? Has God got purposes for me? Is there a special calling on my life? Is he trying to speak to me? I want to encourage you not to despise your background, not to despise the skills you've acquired, not to despise your history, not to despise your gifting or your employment. I want to encourage you to think, has God put me here in this place, in this timing, for a purpose? Maybe he wants to use it particularly in his kingdom purposes. I know of some amongst us who've been a bit nervous sometimes of a promotion or a job change or a a change in direction of career or maybe a house move and we've been a bit nervous. God, could it be God? Could it be him changing your position? Could it be him moving you for the sake of his purposes? That was certainly the case with Nehemiah. God had brought him into a position, a particular position, so that he could use him at an opportune moment. It was the right time for Nehemiah to be called by God. He was not only in the right place, it was the right time. 
I guess it may well have been possible, although we're not told this, that Nehemiah would have loved to have gone back to rebuild the temple and to start rebuilding the city at another time when the first uh, groups went out of captivity and back to Jerusalem. Maybe Nehemiah was thinking, oh yes Lord, now's the time. God, let me get back to the, the place of my father's tombs. I want to be with my people. Maybe God restrained Nehemiah. If you ever found that things don't always happen in the time scale that you would like them to happen? Has that ever been your experience? You think, Lord, surely now that it's happening to this friend of mine, everything's going okay, and they're moving, and things are, are really opening up for everybody around you, but you find yourself held up. And you think, Lord, please let me... Maybe God's holding you back for something. Maybe God's saying, not yet, not yet. Now isn't my time. Then it'll be the right time. Nehemiah, I'm sure, his heart was for Jerusalem. His heart was for the city. He would have longed to go back to the people. And yet God restrained him until this moment, which was the right moment for him. We find an illustration of this whole thing about being in the right place, the right time with Queen Esther. Esther 4, verse 14. Mordecai says to Esther, Who knows? Who knows? He's throwing it out to her. Who knows? Maybe. Maybe this is the explanation for your situation, Esther. Who knows if you have been brought into this royal position for this time? For such a time as this. Who knows? Maybe God's moved you to that job. Into that position. For this time. Maybe God's brought you here today. For this time. He's guiding your steps. He's ordering your ways. You think, why haven't things happened earlier, Lord? And he's saying, because I've been holding you for this time. Keeping you back bringing you into my purposes. People try to get Jesus into a position of authority. They try to get him to do things and he kept saying, it's not yet time. It's not time yet. We find with Joseph, amazing visions and dreams right at the beginning of his life, in his teenage years, he thinks it's all going to happen tomorrow and God makes him await the time makes him await the time. He says, no, you wait, Joseph. I've got all sorts of things to do with you yet, Joseph. I've shown you what I want. I've shown you the vision. I've shown you a burden. But it's not yet time. You await your time. The amazing thing and the wonderful thing is, whichever way it's happening for us, whether God's rushing us on into something, whether he's holding us back, this is true of every one of us. Psalm 31 You are my God and my times are in your hands. Do you have that security today? Whatever's happening, whatever direction your life is taking, whatever seems to be rushing on, whatever's holding back, he's our God and our times are in his hands. Isn't that a wonderful security? My times, I've been trying to get this job and I've been trying to move here and I've been trying to get that to open up for me and it's not working. You're my God. My times are in your hands. 
Secondly, not only is God carefully placing his servant, he's also preparing his servant. Preparing his servant. We find in the uh, first verse of chapter 1, the month Chislev, and in the first verse of chapter 2, we find the month Nisan. Those two months are four months apart. Four months apart. Four months from when Nehemiah first heard the news. Four months from when Nehemiah first started to weep. Four months from when he started to pray. Four months from when he started to fast. I'm not saying he fasted all the time. But he was fasting and praying and weeping during this period. And obviously the longing of his heart was that he'd be able to do something about the situation. He'd heard the news. He was burdened about it. He wanted to get to his people, get to his, his own people and do something about the situation. And yet four months pass before the king who he is serving even gives him an opening to say anything. need to realise that this position of cupbearer was an influential position. It sounds like we kind of think just wine taster, but it meant that he, he had to protect the king. It meant that he spent a lot of time in the presence of the king. It was a very influential position, the cupbearer. But you would have thought Nehemiah receiving this great burden that he would burst on the scene immediately, that God would open the door for him. But instead of that, we find that Nehemiah has been in prayer, weeping and burdened for his people for four months. And that teaches us at least this, that whatever God says to us, and whatever burden, whatever vision he lays out before us, really receiving that burden, receiving that vision, is just the beginning of the story. That is just the beginning. So often we think, oh, I've seen it, Lord. This is what needs to be done. This is the gift that you're giving me. We think, right, let's get on with it. And God is saying, no, that's just the beginning of the story. That's just the beginning of the tests. That's just the beginning of preparation time, folks. So I feel God's gifting me in this way. And he say, yes, that's right, I am. Now the tests begin. The tests usually take place in obscurity. They usually take place in obscurity. The people that Nehemiah was going to minister to and bless and lead hadn't even heard of him. Nehemiah who? Nehemiah is praying. Oh, good for Nehemiah. Who on earth is Nehemiah? And there's this man in private crying out to God, being prepared for a great work, and nobody knows anything about it. And that's difficult to take. We're burdened. God's spoken to us, and we feel like we've got to tell the whole world about it, and God's locking us in to some tiny little situation, into some job, into some care group, into whatever it is, God locks us in and we're bursting trying to get out with this burden and he's saying, no, I am preparing you. And it often happens in obscurity. It happens in obscurity. It happens in the ordinary things of life. Alan Redpath 
in his book about this passage said that God has sent each one of us to be exceptional in the ordinary. Exceptional in the ordinary. So often we're saying, Lord, let me into ministry. If only I was full time, let me get on with it. And he's saying, I'll let you get on with it when you're exceptional in the ordinary things of life. When you prove your faithfulness in the little things of life. When you prove your faithfulness with money. When you prove your faithfulness, when you borrow somebody else's property and you return it in even better condition than when it came to you. I'm proving you. I'm testing you all the time in the little things of life. King David, as he was to be, was tested on a hillside with a few horrible-looking sheep. I'm going to be king of Israel. Let me out there, Lord. No, just, just beat this lion up. Just look after this bear. Just little things God tested him in. But uh, it was just with a few sheep. Just his father's sheep. He could have run away. Nobody would have blamed him. He said, run away from that problem, David. Run away from it. It doesn't matter. It did matter. It was God's testing and proving of him whether he would care after a few little sheep. If he did that properly, God knew that he would care after the people of Israel. Let me ask you, what problem is it you want to run away from today? What problem is it you want to avoid and get round and not think about and pretend God isn't putting it there? What is it? The temptation is to run away and leave it. The temptation is to give in to the temptation. And God's saying, it's my proving ground for you. It's my preparation time for you. So that you can come more fully into the works that I've got for you. Doesn't it, doesn't it make you think that Jesus was a carpenter for 30... Well, he was, he was proved for 30 years. I don't know when he became a carpenter. Maybe he was apprenticed by his father at 12, 14, whatever. All those years, a carpenter. I mean, this is the Son of God, making tables, making chairs, making whatever they made, making a yoke for an ox, the Son of God. Wow, yes, yes, let me just come down from heaven and make a yoke for an ox. And we strive and we think, Lord, why have you got me in this office job? Why have you got me in this situation? I thought you were leading me and then it all closed down. And he's saying, preparation, preparation, preparation. I'm working in you, I'm changing you, I'm moulding you. That lovely song that came through today, Abba Father, you're the potter, I'm the clay. Stop arguing with the potter, you're the clay. You're the clay. clay. Clay does not say, will you stop pouring water on me? <laughs> will you stop spinning that wheel? I'm getting dizzy. <laughs> it's just clay. And the potter has his way. Are you letting God have, your, have his way with you in the time of preparation? Potters do horrible things to clay, don't they? They slap it around and they cut it. And, and if it goes wrong, they start again and slap it. 
You think, Lord, you've been giving me a hard time. And he says, yes, that's right. I'm preparing you. I'm making you ready. Ephesians 2.10 says that he has predestined works for every one of us to walk in. God's got works for every one of us, just like he had a work for Nehemiah. And he means to prepare us to get into it. So he tests us and moulds us through the ordinary. For Nehemiah, it was quite short, really, just four months. For Jesus, it was much longer. For David, it was much longer. Moses had one go in his own strength. Forty years later, God gave him another chance. Long time sometimes, preparation. Hard to cope with. You think, Lord... You spoke to me about this 20, 30 years ago. And what you've put into my heart still has not come to pass. And I believe he wants to say to you today, preparation, preparation. See, when the preparation has been right, you can do amazing things in just three years. Preparation was right. Jesus learned obedience, we read, through the things he suffered. He learned it. There was some kind of process going on in Jesus, even though he was God, perfect. God and man. He was learning somehow all the time. He was relating as a son to his father. God was, his father was teaching him things, and then he said, Now, son, now, get on with the work I've sent you to do. And at the end of his life, just three years later, Jesus said, I have accomplished everything you sent me to do. Really, it doesn't matter how long the preparation time is, as long as you complete everything that he's got for you to do. Amen? It doesn't matter how long you wait, as long as you do exactly what he's got for you to do in the way that he's called you to do it. So Nehemiah's in the right place. He undergoes time of preparation. And then we find really what I believe is a terrific challenge for God's servants. It's the moment of truth, if you like, the crunch time for Nehemiah. The king notices that he is sad. He says, I hadn't been sad, I'd been okay, but now what's inside him starts to show, it's coming to the surface, and the king notes, Nehemiah, you're normally so cheerful, what's the matter? Now, we kind of read over that and we think, oh, he's a bit down in the mouth. You could be killed for being sad in the presence of the king. It's pretty, uh, pretty grim stuff. Carrying this burden for Nehemiah was literally risking his life. Literally risking his life. So the king says to him, Nehemiah, you're sad. And uh, if I'd have been near my, I'd have said, no, I'm not. I'm fine. <laughs> Is it? He's probably sort of getting a sort of cold feeling around his neck. <laughs> the sword coming down. Me? Sad? No. <laughs> but uh, there's a burden inside this man. And it's touching his face. He can't hold it inside. And I love, I love Nehemiah's humanity. So often we put these great saints up on big pedestals so that we can't relate to them. At the end of verse 2 he says, I was very much afraid. 
This man had been in prayer for four months and he was still terrified. I thank God for that little phrase because I find it's just like me. I pray and I pray and I have terrific times in the presence of God, but I'm still scared, really, inside. The things that I have to face, the problems that you encounter, the people that have to be helped, and you think, Lord, I'm so frail, I'm so human. Nehemiah had been in the presence of God, crying out to God, reckoning on the promises of God, reckoning on the purposes of God, and he was still scared. Can you relate to that? I was very much afraid. God had burned him, told him the way he should go. I was very much afraid. Why was he very much afraid? Because he knew that if he opened his mouth and told the king what was on his heart, he could very well die for it. He was actually risking his life by going on to say, I notice he, he slipped something in to start with, let the king live forever, just try to, you know, you know, you're a pretty good guy, you know, let the king live forever. He just slips it in there. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate? It was, he was taking a big risk. In, in previous times, when the temple was starting to be rebuilt, it was seen as rebellion against the king to be on the side of these Jews. Nehemiah is cupbearer to the king. First, he's sad. Second, he wants to help the Jews, who historically have been seen as threatening the kingdom which this king represented. It was a great risk, a great personal risk, for Nehemiah to say anything about these people. Now, I, f I find that I have moments of truth with God. I have moments where I am faced up with the cost of what it means to carry on with what God has showed me. Now, we talked last time about this burden that God wants to place on us for his church to be built, to be built strong, to be restored. Do we realise that there is a tremendous cost in persevering with that burden? For Nehemiah, it didn't only mean the cost of prayer and fasting and weeping. It was not only that kind of cost. We were getting to real crunch time now with Nehemiah. It could have cost him his life. If I'm going to go on with this burden, if I'm going to persevere with this burden, it's going to mean upheaval for me. It's going to mean changes in my life. Nehemiah, pretty cushy position probably there in the, in the courts of King Artaxerxes. It was pretty good there. No doubt, all his needs supplied. And he was going to go and join these people at the risk of his life, who were a distress and a reproach, and their city was broken down. He was going to go from a palace to a ruin. It was going to mean huge upheaval for him to continue with this burden. And we need to realise, folks, that if, if we're responding and saying, yes, I want to see the church built. Yes, I want to see the church renewed 
come into all the glory that God has always intended for her, it is going to be a tremendous challenge. It's going to be a tremendous cost. We call ourselves, many of us, committed members of Clarendon Church. I tell you, this is what commitment is about. It could mean a job move. It could mean a house move. It could mean that you give money until it's painful. It could mean that you give a great deal of your time. You say, why are you doing these things? I've got a burden to build and it's going to cost me. I was thrilled the other evening. I was talking with some of our leaders and I was just sort of surmising off the top of my head. I think we've got a lot of people here and a lot of people there and we're a little bit short on leaders. And one guy immediately piped up and said, well, we could move. I hadn't asked a question. I hadn't even raised that as a possibility. And yet this guy was so there, he's saying, we'll move. Would you move if we said we need to strengthen that area? Would you move house? Would you do that? <coughs> Say we want to raise an offering to help these people. Will you give your money? Will you accept the fact that to be committed to this burden is a life-changing experience? It's a costly challenge for us to be involved. We are not just joining a happy band of pilgrims. We're not just here to have fun every Sunday morning. We're here to see the kingdom of God built. And to see the kingdom of God built means a tremendous challenge to our lifestyle. It means a tremendous challenge to our preferences it means a tremendous challenge to my bank balance. That's what it means, folks, to be involved with this kingdom. We sing songs like, I want to give my life for something that will last forever. I have great difficulty in singing that line. Say, but of course, Chris, what do you mean, Chris? You've given your life to Jesus, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, I have. But that has implications, doesn't it? We sing, I want to give my life for something that will last forever. Will you please give to this gift? Ah, well, ah. It's going to be a bit, that will be a bit tricky. I'm going to give my life. Will you come to that open air? Ah, well, open airs, yeah. Not really my thing. Open airs. I'm going to give my life. Will you disciple that person, please? It means that you're going to see them once a week, every week, for the next six months. I, well, can't quite manage that. Let's be careful when we sing things like, I want to give my life. And then we say, but, not that but I won't give up that hobby. But it clashes with your group night. Yeah, but I can't give it up. Just let it sink in, folks. I don't want to hit you over the head with this today. I just want to lay out before us the cost, the challenge of building the kingdom of God. 
It means upheaval in our lives sometimes. Jesus made tremendous demands of people who wanted to follow him. In fact, it, you sometimes look at Jesus and you think he thought of the most difficult thing possible for that person to stop him joining. So a rich man, he says, get rid of everything. There's somebody whose father isn't well, maybe. He says, let the dead bury their own dead. He's like, Jesus, don't say things like that. He won't join. He said, that's right, I'm facing them with the challenge all the time. I'm facing them with the cost all the time. And Nehemiah was faced with the cost. So I want to give my life to you, Lord. Well, give up that boyfriend. Oh, no, Lord. I want to give my life to you, Lord. Well, give up that TV program that you know I don't like you watching. You always feel wretched after you've watched it. I want to give my life to you, Lord. Get up an hour earlier in the morning to pray. Now, I struggle with all all these things, folks. I do. This is as much a challenge to me as it is to you. But I want us to be clear when we talk about burden to build the house of God, when we talk about being in restoration churches, which is a label we've been given, if we're talking about restoring God's house in all its fullness, it's a tremendous cost. It's a tremendous challenge. Nehemiah adjusted his life radically for the good of the whole. For the good of the whole. This was for the sake of Jerusalem. It was for the sake of the Jews. That's a deep, deep challenge to me. Will you do this so that they can benefit? Will you accept a radical change to your life so that your brothers and sisters will be blessed. It may not even be something you really want to do, but it will be for the good of the whole. I will change my life. I will let alterations come to my way of living in order that the whole can be blessed. Did you know that there was enough food in the world for everybody to have 3,000 calories a day? And yet there are 800 million people starving today. If only a correct adjustment was made, the whole could benefit and be sufficiently fed. If only the minority would change, the, the whole would benefit. And Nehemiah here is saying, I will accept this change, I'll accept this radical difference into my life in order that the kingdom work can go on, in order that all will be blessed. I say to you today, will you be prepared to accept challenges and changes to your lifestyle, to your way of doing things, to your preferences, to your options, in order that the whole will be blessed?
Now, unless we have the sort of encounter with God that Nehemiah had, then anything like this will just appear to be a, a total pain to us. It'll be irksome to us. We'll say, I don't want it. I'm not sure I want to be in this church anymore. Well, good. Because this is the challenge, folks. This is where we are going. We're committed to building the kingdom of God here. And it means cost. It means a challenge. It means change. And for every one of us, it must start at the same place as it did for Nehemiah. We don't really know what went on in this preparation period. But I know the place it has to start for us. It has to start at the cross of Christ. Because we see... Jesus, you laid aside your majesty. You gave up everything for me. And there's no argument after that, is there? There's no argument. You, say, you gave up everything. Do you want to be like Jesus? Yeah, I want to be like Jesus. He gave up everything. For me. He did, for me. We talk, we're talking, we're thinking about people today who gave up everything for us. They gave up everything so that we could have a free country and a free land, so that we wouldn't be dominated by an evil power. We're thinking of those people today. We're grateful for them. Terrible tragedies in their lives so that this nation could stay free. It's the same with Jesus. He laid aside his majesty, gave up everything for me, so that I could have freedom, so that I could... Know him and be with him forever. And when we encounter the cross, when we see the cost of the cross and what Jesus did for me, that should bear fruit in the same attitude in my life. I'm going to give up my life. I'm going to lay it aside for the good of the people of God. It's a big challenge, isn't it? It's going to affect my pocket. It's going to affect maybe where I live. It's going to affect my timetable. It's going to be. It's going to affect my freedom. That's the challenge of the people of God, and we will find it a great pain, a great problem, unless we first encounter the cross and say, "Jesus, you gave up everything. I give my life to you, whatever it means. Whatever it means to build this church. Whatever it means." to be involved in this kingdom I'm going to give everything to you and I want to encourage you that if you find yourself backing off even this morning as you're hearing this if you find yourself backing off the challenge then I'll encourage you go back to the cross have an encounter with Jesus again try and understand ask the spirit to reveal to you what it meant for him to come here when he humbled himself became like a servant humbled himself was obedient even to death on the cross and when you have an encounter with Jesus which makes you live with the meaning of the cross then you won't find challenges like this something that makes you back off but it will make you go forward so we find Nehemiah God's servant deeply challenged and from here, he seems to grow in confidence. 
He's deeply challenged. He has to make this decision. Is he going to speak? And then he speaks and he finds that God's been working on the king already, which is so often the case, that once God has got our heart sorted out, once he's dealt with us and we've made that decision to go, we find he's already been working ahead of us. And the king says to him, what would you like me to do? What's your request? I could do Nehemiah fainting, you know, just, what are you doing down there, Nehemiah? Get up. He's off with his head. And he says, what would you have me to do? I thought it was a heavenly choir for me. It's probably a praise march from one of the other congregations. What would you have me to do? And uh, again, Nehemiah hasn't grown overconfident. He's confident, but he's not overconfident. We find again that uh, at the end of verse 4, the king asked the question, and from Nehemiah we hear, so I prayed to the God of heaven. It's, it's sort of in a conversation with the king, and I want to go back to the land of my fathers, and he says, what would you have me request? He says, okay, Lord, here goes. And he's going to ask him for everything that's on his heart. An arrow prayer, as they're known. Get in that situation, somebody says, so what is this all about Jesus then? What do you mean you're a Christian? You say, Lord, here goes. Help. And Nehemiah's like that. I like this man. I like him. He's burdened. He's praying confidently, but he's still scared. And he finds God's opened the way up for him, but he's still praying. He's not growing overconfident. I prayed to the God of heaven. It's dangerous when things start opening up for us, when you get a little bit of recognition, when God starts using you a little bit more. Such a danger to get a bit self-confident. Nehemiah doesn't let that happen. He says, I prayed to the God of heaven. And when he explains all that he wants to the king, we read, the king granted everything to me. Why? Because the good hand of my God was upon me. You've seen circumstances change. You've seen things adjust. I tell you, if you come to the challenge of what God is saying about the cost of his kingdom, if you will face that head on and say, Lord, whatever it means, you will find situations changing around about you. You will find God turning things in your favour. The king granted everything to Nehemiah because the good hand of his God was upon him. It looks like the king, but actually it's the invisible hand of God, changing things, adjusting things, making a king who should have chopped off his head grant him everything that he desires. The invisible hand of God was upon him. We've got a God who opens We find in Revelation 3, it says he opens and no one shuts. He shuts and no one opens. The invisible hand of God. We give in to him and he changes all sorts of things. 
I was talking with John and Jane a little while back when they were making their wedding plans and we were just talking about one or two difficulties that could be and uh, the next week it had all changed. Everything had been dealt with. We think there are a few attitudes in people which we thought might be different. The next thing we hear, it's all changed. We think, oh, what's happening around here? The good hand of God was upon them. He opens doors. He shuts doors. If he opens the door, nobody can shut it. If he shuts the door, nobody can open it. It's great, isn't it? So I'll go through this door. No, you won't. <laughs> this door's stuck. That's right. <coughs> Do you know this? Whether the door is open or whether it's shut, the good hand of God is still upon you. It's still the good hand of God. We read about the will of God in Ephesians 1. It says, the kind intention of his will. He says, I'm finding this difficult, Lord. He says, yeah, I know you are, son. Won't you change it, Lord? No, I won't, son. But that's mean, Lord. No, it's not. It's the kind intention of my will. It's my good hand upon you. This is the second thing we need to know if we're going to meet the challenge of this kingdom. First, we need to have an encounter with the cross. We need to have private dealings with God so that we see what it cost him. The second thing we need to know is that the good hand of God is on us. Because there will be all sorts of apparently insurmountable obstacles. There will be all sorts of needs for provision and help and breakthrough. And unless we know that the good hand of God is upon us, we will give up. We say, Lord, I feel I've been giving myself to your kingdom. I feel I've been doing things right. I feel I've been following you. And yet this door is closed now. So that's right, it's still my good hand on you. In Psalm 27, verse 13, it says this, I would have despaired... Unless I had believed, I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So that that verse has lifted me so many times. I would have despaired unless I'd believed. You find the psalmist experiencing a time when his faith was waning. He said, unless I believed, I would have gone into total desperation. Are you despairing today? Are you thinking, Lord, Lord, when am I going to find a way through? When am I going to get released from this stuff? When are you going to change my situation? I want to encourage you today, whatever you're facing, the good hand of God is on you. The good hand of God. Now believe. You will go into despair unless you believe. I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Psalm 56, verse 9. This I know, God is for me. God is for me. He's for me. He's for you. The good hand of God is on us here in this church. The blessing is not going to abate. We are going to see more and more of the power of God amongst us because the good hand of God is on us. It's not because of the eldership. It's not because of you. It's because of God. And we'll press on.
Because we know God is for us. Do you know it? Do you know that God is for you? He's for you. He's on your side. So often we think, oh, he might let me have a little bit of blessing. Might be on my side here and there. Elsewhere it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Triumphant people. Yeah, it looks like the king's helping me a bit here. Looks like so-and-so's done me a good turn. No, it's the invisible hand of God working for me, working for us all the time. Let this sink into your hearts this morning. God is for you. Whether the doors are open or whether the doors are shut, God is for you. Whether everything's working out or whether everything is a pain and you're thinking, God, this is awful, the good hand of God is upon you. So Nehemiah grows in confidence because he knows that his God is with him. And then we find that as well as being confident, we find that Nehemiah is a man of great composure. He's a man of great composure. Although he's burdened, he is not striving. If you look at verse 12, he's arrived at Jerusalem. I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what God was putting in my mind to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. Nehemiah's burdened. God's given him a work to do. But we find a man with such a pure spirit, he walks so much in the light, there isn't any manipulation with Nehemiah. He's not thinking, now how am I going to get all these Jews to build these walls? I'd better send some leaflets, advertising campaign, tell them I'm coming to town, uh, we'll have a minute a meeting with all the important people and get them on my side first. None of that. None of that. I didn't tell anyone. It's a man who's confident. It's a man who's composed. A man who's at peace. Not striving. Not manipulating. said, I didn't tell anyone what God was putting in my heart. The reason that Nehemiah is so composed and the reason he is so peaceful and growing in confidence is that God is doing something in his heart. He's inwardly stirred up. You find a very similar phrase in Ezra 1.5 when it, talking about the building of the temple. Everyone whose heart God had stirred up got involved in the work. Everyone whose, God, whose heart God had stirred up. Nehemiah's heart had been stirred up. Let me ask you today, are you stirred up now with a burden to see the church built? Are you stirred up now? I'm not saying, were you stirred up when you came through the commitment course, whenever that was? Were you stirred up at the Dan's Bible Week? Were you stirred up whenever? I'm saying, are you stirred up now? Is something happening in you now? You're saying, yes, God 
is at work in my heart now. God is putting something in my heart. It's a continuous tense here with Nehemiah. Once burdened, once heard from God, it made him wept. God's still putting things in his heart. Let me ask you, have you you just kind of got on board and settled in and saying, well, I quite like this church and it's the one I find most suitable? Or is something stirring inside? Is there a burden inside? Is there an ache inside? Is God telling you to do things for the sake of his people? Nehemiah was stirred up. He didn't have to brag about anything. He didn't have to shout abroad what God was telling him to do. He didn't have to go around and tell everyone about his great spiritual experiences. There was a great work going on inside Nehemiah. And it controlled his actions. It controlled his mouth. It controlled everything that he did from then on. A great work going on in his heart. I found myself praying recently, Lord, my heart is open wide whatever you want to do my heart is an open door Lord for whatever you want to do whatever you want to change whatever attitudes I have that are not in keeping with what you want to do whatever concerns that are preoccupying me that are not the concerns you want me to have my heart is an open door do your work in my heart let my heart feel your heart for your people and for this world. There's got to be a work in our hearts. It's no good just signing up when we come through the commitment course. It's no good just signing up when we become a Christian and say, yeah, I'm in now, fine, great. Is there a work going on in your heart? Is God challenging you and changing you constantly? It certainly was with Nehemiah. He was inwardly stirred. And uh, then he goes on an inspection of the walls. This is no visionary. This is no pie in the sky man. He's a realist. He goes and inspects precisely what the damage is. Before he places before the other people what has to be done, he goes and makes an inspection may be bringing it into our day. It's a peculiar responsibility of those of us who are leaders. And say, well, how are things around here? What is the quality of life here, really? What is the quality of community? How much love is there around amongst us? How much are we preaching the word? What is the prayer meeting like? We make an inspection. We look at different aspects of our church life. What's the worship like? That's what we did a few months back. The leaders here, we said, we don't feel really satisfied with the worship. We feel we could go so much further. So we said, right, we'll preach and we'll teach and we'll try and lead the people more into worship. And so we did it. And an inspection goes on. We're looking all the time. How are things really What is the state, really? I'm not satisfied that we might be the liveliest church in town. That's not what it's about. We're talking about the kingdom coming to this place. 
And we have to inspect things and see what they're really like and then take up the challenge from there. Perhaps we could even engage in a little poetic license and say, what about an inspection of my life? What about an inspection of my life? How are things really in my life? What's my personal walk with God like? What sort of work is going on in my heart? How much am I rising to the challenge? Am I committed to prayer? Am I committed to spreading the gospel? Am I committed to the gifts of the Holy Spirit being shared amongst us regularly and being used? Do I know God as my Father? Am I free from sin? How about a little personal inspection? Let's dwell in reality together. And I love this, that in the midst of a heavy burden and in the midst of a great vision, there was total reality with Nehemiah. Didn't dampen his spirits, didn't dampen his heart, so he didn't think, oh, this is terrible, I'll give up and go back to be a cupbearer now. So this is the way it is, but we're still going to get on with the job. And then Nehemiah finally brings the cost of it all to the servants of God. He doesn't try and pull the wool over their eyes. Verse 17, I said to them, I said to them, God has promised that these walls will go up in two days. No. God has said it's not really as bad as it looks. No. You see the bad situation we're in. It's great recruitment drive, isn't it? Imagine the advert for the Channel Tunnel. You say, this is really hard project, we probably won't achieve it. <laughs> Please send your money in for shares. It wouldn't kind of, it wouldn't work, would it? That's not the way advertisers do it. That's not the way you raise funds. That's not the way you get people involved. You see the bad situation we're in that Jerusalem is desolate, its gates are burned by fire, come let us rebuild the wall. <laughs> Man, what a way to go about it. Come let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. And then this is where it gets good. I told them how the hand of my God had been favourable to me, and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Again, Nehemiah says, look folks, this is the challenge. This is the cost. This is the situation. In Luke 14, Jesus told a parable with the same point. He said, if you're going to build a tower, first sit down and calculate whether you can finish. Calculate whether you can finish. Don't calculate whether you can begin. Don't calculate whether you've got in, enough enthusiasm to get halfway through. Sit down now and calculate, am I going to finish? I believe that Terry knows that I'm committed to finishing with him. That whatever it is, whatever it means, now I know men are fallible, I'm not saying that, but he knows that I'm committed to him in the work that God has brought us into. 
And I, I'm calculating to finish the work. When he's dead and buried, if Jesus hasn't come, I shall go on. And I know there are guys here who are committed to me and saying, we're going to finish. We calculate to get to the end. We calculate to get to the end. We're not, we're not calculating to say, if it gets tough, if there are too many changes, if there are too many alterations, if I don't like Chris's preaching, I may go somewhere else. We're saying, I am calculating to be there to the very end. And that's what Nehemiah laid before them. He says, it's really bad. Let's build the wall. And he makes sure that the first thing they build on is faith. Having looked at the reality of the situation, he told them how the hand of God had been favourable to him and about the king's words. Showed them the cost, but made sure they built on a foundation of faith that God was at work. And although it is going to be a great cost for us, the tremendous thing is that there is abundant evidence that God is at work amongst us. And we can say it's going to be hard, it's going to be hard work, it's going to be a challenge, there will be lots of difficulties along the way, but God is with us. God is for us and he's at work here in Brighton. And then we find this terrific response the end of verse 18. Let us arise and build. Nehemiah goes from a deep personal challenge to finding a wonderful corporate commitment amongst the people. God raised up Nehemiah as the man that they should follow and the Jews said, let us arise and build. And uh, one of the peculiar things that maybe God's doing amongst us is it's not just one man, it's not just Terry Virgo doing everything around here. It's not just the full-time eldership. It's not just the other elders. It's not even the, our senior group leaders and our care group leaders. There's all sorts of people doing all sorts of work throughout this church. And it's the only way that what God wants to build will get built is when we as a people say, let us. Let us. Let us do it together. The only way it's going to get done is together in real camaraderie and commitment and genuine love for one another. We felt as elders the pace hotting up recently as Terry was expressing at the town hall last week. It feels like God's more heavily upon us. And one thing we're finding we're doing, we're praying for one another much, much more. Because what we've been finding is we've been encountering more opposition, more spiritual warfare apparently as we've been pressing on. And we're praying for one another. We're saying, what is it? You feel a bit down today? Let's pray. What is it? What's been the problem? We're getting behind one another. And you find it in the New Testament, Ephesians 2. The whole building being fitted together is growing. 
Ephesians 4, the whole body being fitted together is growing. It's only a sense of real togetherness and commitment to one another that will see the job done. And I want to tell you people, I am committed to you. I'm committed to the people of this church as one of the elders of this church. And I want to call on you again today to let God move in your heart and say, I am not just committed theoretically. I am not just committed because I signed my name once. I am totally committed in heart, whatever it costs, to see God's work done in this place. Let us arise and build. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will mingle this challenge with all your love and grace and all your hope and with faith so that this does truly bear fruit amongst us, Lord. We're not looking to beat one another over the head with things, Father. We just want to arise to the challenge that you're bringing to us. And we want to persevere with the burden that you've laid on our hearts. Lord, I pray, let let great grace be upon us. Let there be more of your love and more of your power in our lives. So that the work that you are calling us to will be completed. That we will see it through to the finish. In Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe we could sing.